Okay, this is White Rain, something I wrote driving through Kentucky thinking about Bill Boy Jackson. I was trying to get out of Kentucky when I made a mistake. Didn't calculate my cash or how much it would take to make the dash. Out of money, out of luck, harassed by passing bourbon trucks. I wish I was in the urban, but I'm stuck in East Kentucky on a rainy day. They're wearing gray. Don't turn your back or make them see you flinch. Recall what Grandma used to say before they took her house away and chased her off the land to start a clan. Coo and clucks, and they traded in their horses. Now they're driving by in four expo trucks with peaky torches on sale at the Walmart. Sing along at the ballpark. Pack a pistol in your office set to use it when the brawl starts. Hashtag Black Death. We keep running out of breath. Now they tax some student loans. It keeps me wondering what's next. Is it cash to class? When they're threatening my poor black ass, I gotta get away and get away fast now. They bring me like the cattle, try to milk me like the cash cow. When it's over, I'm sober, broke, lonely, on the corner, assed out. And it's not my obligation educating fools what that's about. Welcome to Most Popular. That was my guest, Dr. Anthony Kwame Harrison, or simply Kwame. I am Adrienne Trierbenik, and as you can guess, today we're talking about hip-hop and its connection to people's stories, and I am bursting with pride and happiness to be able to bring this conversation your way. Um, one of my first and my true loves is the relationship between fans and the impact music can have on people. I've published one book in the area of music as a means to heal after experiencing trauma, it was called Sing Us a Song, Piano Woman, Female Fans, and the Music of Tori Amos. If you're a Tori Amos fan, I hope that you find the book and you love it because I really wrote it with that in mind. Um, this topic is one of my lifelong, lifelong curiosities, which is why I was really thrilled to be able to get to talk with professor and hip-hop artist Kwame Harrison. Um, Kwame is an interdisciplinary scholar. He holds a PhD in cultural anthropology and teaching in a department of sociology and a program in Africana studies. Much of Kwame's research focuses on popular music studies, specifically hip-hop, but he also does work on an area called Black Leisure Activity and an area called the Radicalized Production of Social Space. Two of his books are Ethnography, Understanding Qualitative Research, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2018, and Hip Hop Underground, The Integrity and Ethics of, of Racial Identification, which was published by Temple University Press in 2009. Currently, he is the Gloria D. Smith Professor of Africana Studies and Edward S. Diggs, Professor in Humanities at Virginia Tech, which is also one of my alma maters. Kwame makes me very proud, extra proud, shall we say, to be a Hokie. Um, Kwame is also president of the General Anthropology Division of the American Anthropological Association and on the advisory board of the Race and Marketplace RIM Network. And on top of all of his achievements, and as you can hear, there are tons of them, uh, he is just the most fun to email and talk with. Our conversation started by talking about underground hip-hop and ended with an overview of the life of a man called James Billboard, in quotes, Jackson. And if you don't know who Billboard Jackson is, do yourself a favor and read up. Um, links to Kwame's books, underground hip-hop tracks, info on James Jackson, all of this can be found on this episode's page of the website, which is Most Popular Pod mostpopularpod.com. You can also sign up for my email list on the website. And as always, if you or someone you know has an area 
of pop culture expertise, please tell them to get in touch. You can get in touch with me through the website. Um, and thank you for letting me bring you your weekly pop of culture. And now my conversation with Dr. Kwame Harrison. Hi, Kwame. Welcome to Most Popular. Hey, Adrian. How are you? I am great. I am so excited to talk to you. Um, so when I cover your bio, I'm going to talk a little bit about your scholarship and your research, but I wanted to start by talking about your journey. So your musical journey, what got you into it, performers you admired in the beginning, or maybe you still admire now, how did you get started? Well, I, I grew up in a strange musical household where um, my mom and I sort of discovered popular music in the late 70s and early 80s around television shows like Solid Gold and things mm -hmm. like that. And my dad <gasps> is one of those folks who's yes. really into classical music. And he, he didn't want anything to do with popular music. So I had this kind of coming of age where I don't have the same musical background as a lot of people. But then in the early 1980s, when I got introduced to hip hop, it just kind of spoke to me in a way and I really kind of made a conscious decision because I was going to a predominantly white high school and this was kind of this new black music. And I was like, I like this music and I'm going to make this my music. And from that point on, I was just kind of dedicated and committed to buying every single hip hop album you could find. And mm -hmm. back in like 84, 85, 86, mm. you could actually do that. Mm -hmm. And by the time I kind of got to college in the golden age of hip hop, um, I, I just... I, I had such a big library and such a big knowledge that it gradually became a bigger and bigger part of my life, and then pretty soon a part of my scholarship. Um, one of the most iconic photos in my little family is me lining up my stuffed animals and standing on chairs and replicating the solid gold dancers. Uh, <laughs> yes, I feel like I feel like people don't even remember Solid Gold, but it was <laughs> such an important just having being able to watch these performers every week for was it a half hour or an yeah. hour? I, I just I just love it, and when I think about a lot of the first musical performers I I liked, although Michael Jackson was never on Solid Gold, and he has to have a big position. I think a lot of the different performers that came on Solid Gold, Cool in the Gang, mm -hmm. Prince, I just have all these memories of, and Dionne Warwick hosted it for yes. a while, and she was, she, was some, she was one artist that my dad really liked, and for that reason, I took real special notice of her. Yeah, my mom was was big into Dionne Warwick. That was a that was a big <laughs> her and Aretha. Aretha didn't have a last name in my house. It was just Aretha. Ah, just... yeah, of course, as she should. <laughs> um, who who were you first into? What what artists did you first admire? Well, as I said, I think Michael Jackson was a big a big mm -hmm. um, performer, and I even before his videos. I mean, probably off the wall. I just remember sort of staring at the album cover and getting the single. So so that was someone that I really liked. And my brother was into the Bee Gees, so I had this early fascination with, with the Bee Gees. But um, gradually, once hip-hop took over, I just started um, following more and more hip-hop artists. And I really credit this group that a lot of people don't remember called Houdini. And they had a second album called Escape. And on the album, they had this great song called Five Minutes of Funk that started the album. But then the third song was an instrumental of Five Minutes of Funk. So I, I 
once I learned, oh, this is the instrumental, and you could like say these lines right at the point where the music changed, I, I started, that really started me rapping that album and that third song. Really? That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it was an instrumental that they included in the album. Um, of... Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. On the album of, on the album of this, this, really classic song called five minutes of funk and again i mean houdini's sort of the age before hip-hop got really popular so a lot of a lot of people who sort of know hip-hop history might not know that much about them right now but in the mid-1980s i'd say 84 85 86 the time i was deciding that hip-hop was my music it was it was all about houdini so being able to recite that song and do it to the music pretty soon it got to the point where i was writing raps in high school and i remember i think my senior year or junior year i I wrote like raps in about i don't know three quarters of the yearbooks i signed i always had a little rap that i really and then (laughs) it was funny because there were a few there were a few like there were there was a, a a a couple of girls that I really liked in high school and they mm-hmm. were like, Oh, would you write something in my yearbook? And I changed it up for them. And I was like, okay, Hey, wonderful. Be hanging out. And I just wrote the traditional stuff. And then they kind of looked at me like, Oh, I was expecting you to write a rap. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the first time I've ever heard of somebody doing something like that. And I love it. That's yeah, wonderful. It was, it was, I, I, I'm, I would probably be embarrassed by them now, but it was a really great way to capture a moment and something that's obviously stuck with me for my life and career. Yes, everyone's got to start somewhere, and you started in the yearbooks. <laughs> that's great. How did this lead to your scholarship? Ah, that's a great question. You know, I, I so I I was in grad school in anthropology, and and I was born in West Africa, so I sort of saw anthropology as a way to connect with my West African heritage and, mm-hmm. and that's a really kind of traditional sense of what anthropology is and largely that that was what I was trying to do and where my goals were but then there comes a point where I was really trying to outline a dissertation topic and trying to apply for funding and even though I was really good at classes and everything I really couldn't figure out what do I want to do for my dissertation and it was at this moment when um, I guess this thing called the internet was just becoming popular and suddenly I realized that oh you could access all this different music that's not necessarily mainstream music I would call it more underground hip-hop music via the internet so I gave a talk about this and one of my mentors just said this is what you need to do your dissertation on Mm. and I took her advice and I started crafting a proposal and the more I got into it and started to or was trying to make sense out of some of the things I was seeing, particularly surrounding race and ethnicity and this kind of independent hip hop movement. That's, that's when things started to connect for me. And I really saw this as a a viable dissertation topic. So how did you relate? um, I'd like to talk about the race and ethnicity aspect a little bit. How did you connect race ethnicity with what you're, what you were studying? Um, Well, so hip hop, hip hop can be defined in all sorts of ways, but a lot of times the most visible figure is the person who's rapping, the right. MC, the rapper. And at that time, and I would say still today, most of the MCs and rappers that you see are black or African American. Mm-hmm. Yet 
hip hop, I was seeing this independent hip hop movement very much like a folk movement. And by folk movement, I mean everyday people were kind of making the music and, and putting it out there. And that was something for a lot of, a lot of the early years of hip hop, the late eighties and early nineties, people were really seen as needing to have a record label. And this idea of local hip hop artists really didn't exist. But as artists started to become more localized, and a lot of this had to do with the domestication of recording technology, so people could make things in their bedroom and put out CDs. And I know garage bands had existed for a long time, but this was really something you didn't see much in hip-hop. But as that started to happen, you started to find more hip-hop artists who resembled the local demographics of the community of listeners. And that had always been diverse, at least since the mid-'80s. So um, the Bay Area, where the particular place that I did my research, you had a lot of Asian-American hip-hop artists. You had a lot of white hip-hop artists. You had a lot of black hip-hop artists. You had a lot of Latino hip-hop artists. But but instead of it just being one sort of category that I would say record labels were saying, this is what a hip-hop artist should look like, mm. you had just everyday people, people who were fans. That I really call it this kind of line between fan and artist. And that, that line started to blur, and it it hadn't blurred in hip-hop until about the mid, mid-1990s. And that's when this thing called underground hip-hop, or at least what I call underground hip-hop, starts to emerge. Um, if I, we can back up for a second with what you were saying about labels. Sure. In my own research, I found that there's yeah. there's two types of artists, maybe, maybe not just limited to two, but I see that people who, um, understand what a label wants are perfectly happy to put that out in the world and are perfectly happy and content to, um, fall into that lane. And then there are other groups that say, yes, but we're doing this and, um, we don't fit into that, but it doesn't make us any less impactful or important or worthy of Mm -hmm. the attention. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I, I think that's that's one of the things that attracted me about underground hip hop initially, and I really kind of see it as in in the I see it as a counterculture in a lot of ways because it arose in opposition to the mainstreaming of hip hop. And even though in terms of the people who were doing it, I think there was a there's a class component and there's certainly a gendered component to it. So it's a lot of guys, and it tends to be people who are middle class closer to middle class because people who can afford, who have easier access to some of the technologies, it still was this thing that was saying mainstream hip-hop is going this way and Mm -hmm. we are trying to keep something pure about it. And whether that purity had to do with taking it back to kind of the origins of how people imagined it was conceived in 1970s New York or whether it was just, you know, we are everyday people, we don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars of corporate backing behind us. This is stuff I make in my bedroom and I put it out. There was some integrity to that. And as fans, or at least some fans, and I would say particularly fans who kind of look outside of their backyard for music, that was seen as being genuine in an important kind of way. So do you think that they were people who are creating this? Who do you think they're creating for? Themselves, fans, everybody, Anyone who listen would they do it even if no one was listening? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, a lot of when I was getting into it, a lot of the people who were doing it were young, were young, and by young I mean, 
maybe 15 to 25 at the oldest. And when you're fifth, and particularly when you're 15 or 16, and there's this idea suddenly, like I can have a record and it can be right there in the music store <laughs> next to my idol. I can mm-hmm. put out a cassette tape. I think there's such a purity to to what you're trying to do that it's really a a just art for art's sake. And this is what my voice is. Sure, you want people to 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 like what you do, but 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 there's there's a real pressure not to sell out and there's a real pressure to define yourself as different and to do things unique so i think early on i don't think a lot of these kids i think like they would want obviously whenever you put something out you hope it's well received but but you there was a real a real dogged um putting your foot down and saying i'm not going to compromise my voice and what i want to say to impress anybody now mm-hmm. as you get older and as you I, I think there's a point and i'm not sure when that is but let's say that you've been making music for 10 years now let's say you're approaching your late 20s and you start <laughs> to say hey i don't i don't have any money in my pocket right. i think that those i mean it's it's fluid and i think that those those kinds of goals can can change but initially at least and when i was starting and with a lot of the people i was doing work around and these were um mostly i'd say like college age kids 17 18 19 it was just about the purity of the music and and uh, anybody it speaks to um, probably i'm happy with that you know any yeah yeah, there's the, I feel like you're saying that there's this emotion attached to it, that there's this, um, this desire to create is, is foreground. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think for the, for artists, there's this, there is this desire to, to be a participant yeah. in, in the scene and, and to be doing something. And for fans, I mean, I can tell my biography and I've spoken to a lot of people that I don't think my biography is unique. There, some of the artists that I admired the most um, suddenly just disappeared and were dropped by record labels. And then you, you kind of felt like as a longtime hip hop fan, I felt like I was into hip hop at a time when not that many people were into it. And then suddenly you see everybody's singing it. So you're kind of looking for what's that new cutting edge thing, that new sort Mm -hmm. of hidden thing. And underground hip hop provided that for a lot of fans in the, in a lot of fans who want to define themselves or mark themselves as distinct by their musical consumption choices. Yeah. So you're a researcher. Um, you do ethnography and autoethnography. Can you explain a little mm-hmm. bit about what what those are uh, and how they apply to what you do? Sure. Ethnography is basically the practice of going into a research community and living, going into a community and living within that community as a way to research it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where some people think about qualitative research as involving interviews, and certainly ethnographers can do interviews, and most do. To some degree, there's almost an internal critique of interviews, saying that an interview is an artificial situation where people are more prone to say what they think are the cultural ideals. If you really want to see how people live, be around them 24 hours a day, be around them all the time and see how they do things. So, so it's that research practice. And I mean, the real, 
method, I guess, is sometimes called participant observation, where you're both participating and observing. And that right. has long history in anthropology and in some branches of sociology. And a lot of times it had to do with studying these different groups, different uh, groups of others with anthropology, particularly going to these exotic and different cultures. But that's sort of grown into a methodology now that's used in a whole lot of places, corporate settings, mm -hmm. um, a, a bunch of schools, all sorts of places. People are doing ethnography all sorts of places. Autoethnography is really follows from a moment when uh, ethnography was becoming more self-conscious and people started to realize it, it, it's, it's a critique of objectivity. People realize to understand what if I'm reading something you're saying, I want to know who you are and I want to know something about what were the experiences that led you to know what you know. I'm right. not just going to take this voice from above saying this is the way this culture is. I want to I want to learn how you knew this. So more and more, I'd say starting in the 1970s and really led by a lot of feminist ethnographers and feminist traditions and qualitative research, I, I think that more and more having the autobiographical components in ethnography became really expected. I mean, people wanted to, to know this. And yeah. as that grows, that grows to a point where this new genre emerges called autoethnography. Now, what's the line between autobiographical components of ethnography and autoethnography? I'm not really sure, but, but autoethnography centers the experiences of the person and the experiences of the researcher. But I should just say it's not necessarily something where researchers are just talking about themselves and telling their story. It's, tell, it's talking about, it's telling your story or talking about your experiences and perspectives as a way to shed light on something that is cultural. So again, this, these are trained social science researchers who are really foregrounding their own position. Uh, just to give one example, and here is an example, one of the ways that I knew that race mattered mm -hmm. within this multiracial hip-hop, underground hip-hop scene in the Bay Area that I was going to, if you talk to anybody, almost anybody would tell you, oh, it, it doesn't matter what race you are, it's all, do you have skill as a rapper? Yeah. But for me, but I could look at the way people responded to my body and mm -hmm. my African-American body yep. and realize the way that doors were opened for me in a way in which if I looked different, if I had a different body, people, I still could have participated in certain ways, but I doubt my path would have been nearly as smooth. And that tells me, yes, indeed, race does matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good example of the combination of the two, too, of the ethnographic and autoethnographic. Um, I ask yeah. you that because um, I know you did, we've touched on the, the underground hip hop scene and the stuff you've done. Um, but I also ask you that because you wrote for an issue of dysfunction and you wrote um, about Billboard Jackson. And when I was reading this, I was thinking of the autoethnographic and ethnographic, but I was also thinking um, this is kind of the point of doing this type of research that we want to bring stories up of people whose lives have been, uh, like I was saying earlier, missed or, or kind of glossed over and connect it back to either our own experiences or just to tell their stories. I think that's what feminist researchers are probably trying to get at when they brought up autoethnography. Um, so I want to, I want to talk about him because uh, I, I told this, I said this to you before we started recording. I'm fascinated with people who 
are just not there on our on our radar and who yet have yeah. have had extraordinary lives. So could you talk about who he was, who um, James Jackson or Billboard Jackson, who he was and, and what he did? Sure. Um, I was introduced to James Jackson with, on a project on hip hop that I was doing with a, a former student. And it was really about Billboard magazine's history in writing about hip hop. Mm -hmm. And as a component of this article, we did Billboard magazine's history with race. And suddenly this figure appeared in the, who wrote for Billboard magazine in the 1920s. And this is really notable because it's so early. It's long yeah. before something even called race records appears. And yeah. really, if you people, historians of the 1920s will know this is a really racially tense period mm -hmm. in American history. The KKK was on, on the rise. We just had what's known as Red Summer of 1919, which mm -hmm. was a summer in which there were a whole lot of race riots all over the country. And so at this time, Billboard magazine makes an unprecedented move to hire this person. And so Billboard Jackson, or James Jackson, James Billboard Jackson, he's a man who had a big history in musical entertainment, and he was really known to know a lot of people throughout New York City and throughout what was emerging as the Harlem Renaissance. And for that reason, the fact he was so well-connected at that time, Billboard said, this is the right person. We need to write about black music. Mm. Now, one of the things he was doing for black music was if if you a lot of people know Billboard because of the charts, but Billboard is really a trade magazine. So a lot of our uh, my first experience reading the actual magazine, not just the charts, w was after I started working in a record store. So it's really for people in the trade. And yeah. One of the things Billboard Jackson was doing was he was providing. He did a number of important things for black entertainers, but one thing he did was he provided lists of places where traveling musicians could stay because if you were black traveling throughout America. America, but particularly the, particularly the Jim Crow South, mm -hmm. you couldn't count on just having going to any hotel and sp spending the night or finding uh, being able to eat anywhere. So he was doing right. all these sorts of things. So to make a long story short, although he had many career trajectories, one of the things I discovered after about three or four years of researching him was that he was also an instrumental part of this thing called the Green Book of Negro Motorists, which many people may have heard about surrounding the movie that came out, I believe, last year called The Green Book. But right. it, between 1935 and, 19, and the 1960s, there was this book that existed for black travelers, black automobile travelers. And although it's credited to a man called Victor Green, and that's why it's named The Green Book, the book was also green, but that's why it was named, <laughs> Billboard Jackson um, was working closely with Victor Green, and Billboard Jackson was working for Esso Standard Oil at the time, which was the main service station through which the book was distributed. So you find really? this figure yeah. who's connected to black music, who's connected to big big corporations in Esso Standard Oil, which became Exxon, mm -hmm. um, and also had a role in the U.S. government, which yeah. is a whole other story, but was also a part of this book to help black travelers. And that's a lot of what I was um, writing about in this dysfunction piece was how the same issues he was dealing with at that time connect to some of the, I mean, genuine concerns that people have about traveling in contemporary America, particularly with the rise of the alt-right and with mm -hmm. the place where it seems like racism, seems like old-fashioned racism is getting 
fashionable again. So mm-hmm. certainly not everywhere in the country, but there are places in this country where if you look like me, you and you're traveling through, you travel with some trepidation. So yeah. part of what I was trying to capture in this dysfunction piece was one, just introducing, sharing some of Billboard Jackson's story. And, and there's more to say about that, but also saying how he continues to have relevance, um, even a, a I'd say a re-emerging relevance in the last since 2016, I would say, but really with with a with a rise of racism. So I, that's a lot of what that piece is about. Why is it important to tell his story? Why do you think? Well, there there are a number of reasons. One, he is. I, I've kind of glossed over some of the significant things he did, but if he worked. He worked closely with Herbert Hoover. If if you look at the lev- the the profile he had at the time, it's actually shocking that so many so few people have ever heard anything mm-hmm. about him. And, and most people I encounter haven't heard anything about him. And I didn't know anything until I sort of discovered him. So one is just there there are, there are several important figures, but he seems like a real key figure in history, and I would say in African-American history, but whatever marginalized group that we don't share and tell their stories, and I think it's important to to recognize what he did and the real pioneer of racial integration that he was. I also feel somewhere, and this is just my own kind of thoughts, that there is an untold story about the connections between big business, maybe even automobility in, in terms of automobiles, yeah. the federal government and black music, because he's someone who had real strong footholds in all of these places. I wonder, is there something, is there some reason why we are not hearing more of his story? And is he somehow like, I have this, I have this dream that, that, that he's the key and somehow around <laughs> Billboard Jackson, some, some conspiracy or some connection all, all, all comes together. I'm, I'm really not sure, but Finally, I would just say I, I characterize him as a pioneer of racial integration. And although we think about racial integration as something in the past, we still live in, soci- in a society where a lot of spaces are segregated and where a lot of times people move into different racialized zones and geographies and spaces as pioneers. And I think that there's something to be learned from his story that can help us as individuals and as a society to to move through this this ground that we're still very much in the middle of you know for me i think um i think it's always telling the stories that get told versus the ones that don't that's a lot of use of the word telling but you, you get what i'm saying um it's it's very clear you know what is privileged mm-hmm. and what isn't. And so when we find people like him, um, there's this, this, for me, there's always this, why, why is this not being told? And we know why. I mean, it, it's, it's obvious. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I do think it's, it's an interesting question who, whose lives rise to the top, who's, who's, who is acknowledged and, you know, where are we placing privilege in all of that? That's 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 so true. If someone I actually knew someone at the University of Texas where they have the Exxon archive, and they I, they heard me going on about Billboard Jackson. They just put me in in touch with that archive. They're like, "Here's where you'll find information." About wow! Him. And I contacted I contacted the head archivist, and and 
he emailed me back saying, yes, I know who Billboard Jackson is. I, I don't know if you have a file or, or I'll check and get back to you. And uh, so the lead arch archivist at, at the University of Texas, their Exxon Archives contacted me after a week and said, we have nothing on Billboard Jackson. So even wow. though he knew, he had heard the name. He definitely knew the person. Once I said the name, oh, yeah, I've heard of this person. Um, so, part, so, I mean, whatever records they have, those records weren't important enough to keep. Wow. That's, yeah, that's part of the issue, too, is what is yeah. important, what isn't. Um, well, let, let me just say, this has been so fascinating for me. I, I think we could talk for hours if right, um, right. I wanted to do an epic <laughs> five-episode <laughs> arc. <laughs> I think we'd have plenty of material. Um, but yeah. I want to I want to end with asking you the question that I'm I'm asking everybody: um, Who or what deserves to be voted most popular for you? Most popular, I think the those who tell stories. Okay, and I think those who tell the stories that touch all of our lives, that have the most universal appeal, I would really say, that stories that, that reach people in a way that, that makes sense and that people find compelling, I would say across a lot of the different ways that we can divide up who people are and who the pop, who the population is. So it's odd because in this sense, I wouldn't put underground hip hop artists there. And I think that a lot of the most popular musicians sometimes deserve to be the most popular musicians because mm. they realize how to touch people's hearts and people's emotions or people's, even people's intellect, something that's compelling in a way that, again, I think transcends a lot of the social divisions that we have. Um, Kwame, thank you so much for talking to oh, me and being on my, my podcast. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank I you. could not be prouder that I am a Hokie. And... <laughs> <laughs> I'm a proud Hokie, too. Yeah. I know. <laughs> this is wonderful. Thank you this so much. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I love to talk about all this stuff, as you can tell. Once again, I would like to say thank you to my guest, Dr. Kwame Harrison. You can check out more on my website, mostpopularpod.com. I am also on Instagram at mostpopularthepod, Twitter at mostpopularpod, and Facebook at mostpopular. And if you liked this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. And I will see you next time. 